what you write about you is more important than anything else because at the end of the day, what you believe about yourself, that's what matters most. Welcome to Empowering Change, Women and Girls in STEM podcast series hosted by the National Girls Collaborative Project. I'm your host, Nancy Scales Coddington, Director of Strategic Partnerships at NGCP. In this episode, we explore how imposter syndrome, gender biases, and limited mentorship opportunities can shape women's college experiences. We will learn how support networks and the impact role models can have are crucial to empowering women pursuing STEM. Our guest is Dr. Siobhan Day-Grady, Assistant Professor and Program Director of Information Science at North Carolina Central University, and she is the first woman to graduate with a PhD in Computer Science from North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University. Welcome, Siobhan. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Can you share a little bit about your background and really what inspired you to go into computer science? That is a great question. Let let me think for a moment on where I want to start. I think I want to take you back to uh, young Siobhan, who was growing up as an only child, no siblings, and highly interested in video games and computers. It probably started there. Because I didn't have any siblings, I uh, actually come from a big family. My parents have many siblings, and I had a lot of first cousins. A lot of them were boys and I would play them on the video games and I would beat them all. And that really triggered them (laughs) and upset them because a girl was beating them on uh, the video games and it was so much fun. And later on, as I got older and as computers became more available, we had one in my home and I took my love for video games and the console actually to the computer. So I went to play video games on the computer and not too long after I did that, something called the internet uh, came around. And I know I'm really dating myself, um, but this is the early I'm right there with you. (laughs) This is the early days of dial up where um, you would actually, your computer would dial a number to get connected to the internet. And if someone called your home, it would completely disrupt that internet connection. And so those of you who know, know, and those of you don't, that's okay, because now you have something called Wi-Fi, you have it even better. Um, But long story short, my love of computers and technology began at that early age of playing video games um, with my cousins um, who are males. And I didn't even know at that time that girls didn't like video games. So what I'm trying to make the connection here is, is that I've always kind of been in this space where I've been in something that's considered maybe male dominated but I never felt that I didn't belong. Also include that my mother um, worked for IBM until she retired from that company. And my father actually uh, majored in math. Uh, So he's a mathematician. And until he retired, he was a a senior programmer at Duke University. And so I had two living role models in my home that actually worked in the tech space that probably I can attribute my love for technology to them because I had these living role models that I could look up to that were on the computer. Um, I didn't have to shy away from learning and growing. And again, once that internet came around, I went from playing video games to actually um, developing websites. 
and learning how to do that on my own. And being an only child, you quickly learn how to play by yourself. And what I mean by that is I spent a lot of time reading and just tinkering around until I figured things out. And my love started there. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to actually being involved in a lot of STEM programming also while I was in school. Um, There's a program here in in North Carolina called uh, MSEN, the Math and Science Education Network. And so I would actually take what they called at that time Saturday Academy, where we would go take science and math courses at a local uh, college. Um, Some of it will be UNC Chapel Hill. We would have these Saturday classes that were in science or math. And my love just grew from there. I've always loved math because I could primarily check my answers to make sure I was right. And who doesn't like being right? <laughs> English can <laughs> always do that, um, especially as a youngster. So my love just grew from there. And when it came time to go to college, um, I had other thoughts on what I might want to major in. But ultimately, I decided to major in computer science which I'm so grateful that I did because computer science and math go hand in hand. Um, The curriculum at uh, my alma mater, which is Winston-Salem State University, you get a minor in math just by majoring in computer science. So I actually got all of what I wanted by majoring in computer science. And as you've already heard, I had my parents, I had my love for gaming, the love for the internet and the love for building websites, all of those things. In addition to that, those Saturday Academy classes, all of those things attributed to my love for computers and wanting to major in computer science. So that's a little background of how I arrived to this destination. But there are other points after my undergraduate um, you know, matriculation that we can talk about later. But that's how I arrived at majoring in computer science. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of support through this too, which was which is key, and we are going to get into that. I do have to ask: was the was your first computer one of the IBM PC juniors? You know what? I don't remember. We it was something IBM related. I can't remember, but what I do remember, again, because my dad's a programmer, we had a lot of different computers, and I had like, uh, or I should say, my father had a network of computers that all talked to each other. So there were different computers in my home that we had doing different things. So <laughs> that if, if that makes sense. So I really was excited to to see all of that happening. And, and that further, again, attributed to my love. But what I really wanted, uh, the computer I really wanted was a Mac growing up, and I didn't have that. But I wanted one because they were so colorful. And in the schools, they had all the colorful Mac computers. So um, that's what I do remember is what I didn't have. <laughs> I don't remember the one that was actually... <laughs> In our house. I just remember the one that I wanted, which was a Mac. Well, my, my dad also worked at IBM and that PC Junior first came out and that was our first exposure too. And that was right when the internet was was starting. So exactly what you're talking about with the dial-up. So I'm, I'm a kindred spirit there. <laughs> Good times. Yeah, definitely. Uh, gender biases can be a significant barrier for women in STEM fields. You know, how can these biases manifest during college and what steps can students take to challenge and combat these stereotypes? This is great because kind of as what I was alluding to with your last question, um, there are certain majors, um, particularly STEM, that if you were to Google what does someone in that particular STEM field look like, um, a person of color probably may not pop up and definitely not a woman. So um, how those things manifest in college is, I'll use one 
um, example that I've, I've used it a lot because it's, it's actually real is getting paired up to work on a coding project um, with your peers who probably more than likely will be males in your class and them letting you know that they're going to do all the coding and you're going to be the secretary for the project. That's one of the ways that it manifests because, again, there's this stereotype that girls can't code or we're better suited to be in a secretarial role, which is nothing wrong with with being in a secretary role, but a man can do it just as well as a woman. And so these things manifest and you have to learn how to advocate for yourself and let people know what your capabilities are and that, no, I would like to be the lead coder for this project. You can actually take notes at all, all of our meetings um, and just let them know that, you know, it's, it's for everybody. Every role that is a part of the team is interchangeable and not specifically designed for one person based on their gender. And that's one of the ways that it manifests during college. And what students can do to combat those stereotypes are a multitude of things. One thing is, again, advocating for yourself. And I know that that is easier said than done. Some of us are um, not as confident. Um, I just happen to be a youngster who's always been very confident in myself. But I recognize as being a college professor that many students aren't confident to speak up, mainly because they are afraid or scared or thinking that someone else might know more than them. But let me be the first to tell you that sometimes everything that looks like is not actually what it is. Sometimes that person is saying they're the lead, going to be the lead coder is maybe not even actually all that confident in their ability. Maybe they are actually just wanting others to like them and get validation. So sometimes things are not what they appear to be. So learn how to get that confidence and advocate for yourself. Also, if there's someone else on the team that you feel comfortable with, it's okay for them to advocate for you. It's okay for them to say, no, I think Siobhan would be excellent in the lead programmer role. Or you can actually provide other options for, you know, maybe like a little code off. Sometimes you just have fun with it. No, let's do a little code off and see who can code this the quickest or the fastest or who does it the best to actually see who might be better suited for that role. So confidence, um, learning how to advocate for yourself. Those are ways that you can do it. And then one thing that I love to do is I let my work speak for itself. Sometimes the proof is in the pudding, as uh, as seasoned people will say, and the truth is there. True. The work will always um, be that determining factor. And so I say that because sometimes you can't stop people from thinking whatever they're going to think about you. But the work that you do is a standalone, and that can't be denied. There are things that I do that because I'm a woman and because I'm a black woman, whatever stereotype someone may have had about me, when they see the work that I've done, there's no denying that, irregardless of what they have to say about those physical attributes that I that I have. So those are some some simple things that I think college students can do. Um, and remember, you're learning and growing. So if you don't get it right the first time. Take that first project as a learning lesson, and then you just improve the next time you get paired on another project with someone else. And just also know that some of these issues, unfortunately, are lifelong. And so the more that you learn how to adapt, how to grow and be resilient, the better that you'll be on every project that you get handed. 
I really like that message of growing and putting yourself out there in those opportunities because this is the time for that, right? To try things that you may or may not like. And that's really helpful, I think, for your trajectory as you work through your college career. Absolutely. Um, all of that's necessary. And again, I, I can't say it enough. Uh, none of us has it all together. We are all still learning and growing and finding new ways to be better. So, you know, be kind to yourself. That is so true. We are learning stuff every every single day. Well, this leads really nicely into my next question. You know, when you're talking about how people don't have that confidence, you know, that really brings up that imposter syndrome, right? So how prevalent is imposter syndrome among women studying STEM in college? And, you know, how can they overcome that? It is very prevalent and it goes beyond the college years. It is it's in professional women's lives too. I too get imposter syndrome. Um, and really that's just a belief that you don't deserve something or you're not positioned for whatever is being asked of you. And what has worked for me is my support system. And what that can look like for you or for anyone or for myself is family, friends, mentors. We all need someone to pour into us. We need a, a squad, if you will. We need that team of people where when we're feeling a little bit unsure of ourselves or um, I'll give you an example. I have been asked to speak um, sometimes at venues that I never even dreamed. And sometimes it's like, wow. So sometimes I might reach out to my support system and say, hey, do, do you think I could do this? Or what do you think? And my squad is, they're like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? And they will remind me <laughs> <laughs> of something that I've done before that perfectly positions me for why I was asked to do that. And the reason why I say that is sometimes we're so busy working on things that we forgot what we've actually done. And so make sure you have that team of people. It can be your parents, grandparents, your siblings. It can be your mentors, uh, your teachers, friends. Make sure you have that team of people that you can reach back to that can really reassure you that yes, not only are you well positioned for what the, has been asked of you, honestly, if they hadn't have asked you, I might think something was wrong. And so that's what, really what you need sometimes. And also what's uh, helpful too, is if you're a person that journals, keep a, keep a running log of, of your accomplishments. Sometimes what you write about you is more important than anything else, because at the end of the day, what you believe about yourself that's what matters most. So make sure you can reach back into those systems. Mentors are great. I can't say that enough. Um, I have what I like to call a board of directors, different mentors for different things. And really what they are is guides. And all of us needs a guide. There will be, never be a point where we won't need someone to kind of show us the way because things are changing every day. So make sure that you have those right people and those positions who will keep you grounded, but also that you trust to actually uh, reaffirm and reassure you that you can do it. And again, if no one else or you don't have anyone to do that, that journal that I talked about, have that and reassure yourself. Look in the mirror and this might sound cheesy, but it's so true. Make sure you look in the mirror and talk to yourself. And what I mean by that is sometimes um, I know people who and I haven't done this, but I do know people who, before they do a speech, they look at themselves in the mirror when they pronounce words or make sure they're smiling. You can do that same thing for yourself. 
um, to, to have that reassurance. You know, I am who I say I am. I am, you know, queen or I can do this. Do it. There's nobody there to judge you but you. That's great. That's super great advice. I really like what you're saying about keeping that running log of accomplishments because we are so busy doing that we do forget the things that we've done that have brought us on our path. And I think that that's really helpful, in, especially in a situation like this, to remind yourself that, yes, you were asked to do these speaking uh, engagements because of the work that you have done. Absolutely. That we are our best advocates. We really are. So we have to believe it, too. <laughs> You started talking about role models and, you know, we know from research that role models and mentorship play a crucial role in academic success. So what are some of the unique challenges women face in finding mentors in STEM fields? Because that that's not easy. You know, we've already touched upon that. And how can they lean into these mentorship opportunities? I, I hope that this is taken well, but we have to start asking for what we want. Uh, and I say that because sometimes as as women, and not just women, people in general are afraid of rejection. We have to learn how to ask for things that we want and see a no, not as a never, but as a not right now. And I say that because mentorship is something that you want someone to say yes to and really have the time to do it for you. So every no is not something that should be seen as, oh, I was rejected. It could be that person saying no, because I really don't have the time to give you that you will deserve. And so uh, I think one barrier that I have seen, particularly in young women, um, is just being afraid to ask. I also know that sometimes people are looking for mentors, they're putting themselves in a box. All of your mentors don't have to be women just because you're a woman. A man can be your mentor, or it can be someone that doesn't look like you. Uh, I'm a black woman. Um, my mentors don't all have to be black. Okay. You need to have a well-rounded and diverse group of people who, again, can help you get to where you would like to be. You can't be afraid to ask. They don't all have to be in the same um, field per se. These just have to be people who can guide you to where you want to be. So for instance, if you are a young person and you want to be on an advisory board or a board member of an organization, you can ask someone who serves on a board to be your mentor. They don't have to be specifically in the same discipline or field that you're in, but they can definitely be a guide for you on how to be a successful board member. And that's great, but you have to be able to ask for what you want and a lot of times you need to be able to discern why that person might be a good mentor for you. People want to know how, how is it that I can help you? So you have to be more thoughtful and intentional and in explaining to people that you would like to be your mentor, how you see that they could help you and how you see how you see that you might be able to help them too. Because relationships don't have to be one directional. They can be bi-directional. And so that's also something that you need to think about when you're making your ask as far as mentorship. And additionally, I want to say, sometimes mentors find you. You don't have to even ask. It might be one of your professors seeing great potential in you and they want to take you under their wing and you have to decide again, if that's going to be a good fit for you. 
the great thing about all of this, what we're discussing is you hold the power um, to these decisions and who you want to be a part of your board of directors. So keep in mind to be thoughtful and intentional and you don't have to say yes to everything and you don't have to take every no to heart. That's great advice. I really like that. Asking for what you want and being very intentional in what you're looking for, because that's really going to take you in that next step further. Absolutely. You had started talking about an analogy earlier, which I really like called that board of directors, which is that accountability piece of there. It's not really a board of directors, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about what that actually means? Absolutely. So I have several different mentors. They're not all in my discipline. They do not all look like me <laughs> who I can draw upon for guidance, for information, for a multitude of things that I find to be extremely invaluable. And why that's so important is because, and this is a true story, even though most people won't say this, having a doctorate degree does not mean you know everything. What it means is that you know one thing very, very well, especially for a PhD and other disciplines. It means you know your research, your work area extremely well. You're an expert in that. But what I am not an expert in is everything. And so I might go to one mentor because I serve on different, many different boards, I might go to that mentor for information on something that I might be experiencing on a board, or I might go to another uh, person mentor for policy information, or I might go to another mentor for information about how to be um, about my professorship. There's many different things that I go to people for, or I do a lot of keynotes. I might want someone to listen to a speech that I have coming up. The point is, I recognize that everyone's busy, and sometimes you can't keep pulling on the same person all the time. And so that's why the board of directors is so, and that's just what I'm calling it again, as you mentioned. Um, but that's why it's so important to have this team of people who are actually helping me, at least I like to think they are, helping me be the best Dr. Siobhan Day Grady that I can be and making sure that I stay on track with what I have decided my professional goals are. And everyone can have this. And and even let me just say this, part of that board of directors, you better believe is my parents. Okay. Those are part of my mentors as well, because they, they know the way I lean on them very heavily for their input, even though they may or may not be in this discipline, they still have wisdom and knowledge that is valuable. And so you don't want to leave anybody out who might be able to help you on your journey, because all of this is a journey. None of us starts out at the top. Most of us work our way, slow and steady wins the race. Most of us work our way to where we want to be. And even when you get to where you want to be, as I mentioned earlier, there's always room for improvement. Board of Directors is basically my support system. It absolutely does. And those support networks and those support systems are absolutely key for helping us to achieve those goals. 
Let's uh, shift gears and talk about something that has been in the news quite a bit lately, and that's about creating inclusive campus environments, which is really crucial for empowering women in STEM. What are some practical steps that these education institutions can take to foster an inclusive culture and provide equal opportunities for women pursuing STEM degrees? This is a great question. I think there's a couple different things that institutions can do. And the first thing, making sure they have a, a diverse group of professors that are serving their student population. That's important. Having women, like for instance, I'm a woman in computer science, having women in computer science be professors at your universities. Seek women out. Seek, again, diversity. Seek all ethnicities out. Problem is things have been so mono for years where we've had only the same type of thing. We need all different aspects of different voices because everyone's experience in computing is not the same. So having um, a diverse group of professors, I think, is one way that institutions can better serve their student populations to create that inclusiveness. One reason why is because everyone needs to have someone that they can relate to. That relatability component is so important because a lot of times, from my own experience as being an educator, I taught at a, a different public institution about five years ago, and I was the only uh, Black woman there. I don't know why, but when I tell you during my office hours, everybody came. Um, and sometimes it wasn't always about uh, the school, the coursework. They just wanted someone that they could talk to because they believe, and it could have been my age as well, let me say that. Um, but that relatability aspect was so important for those students. And I was happy that I could be that person that they could come to um, for that. Also, making sure that universities have those student organizations that cater towards women. So for instance, um, in my discipline, we have an organization called the Association of Computing Machinery. Um, it's for computer scientists, but they also have ACMW, uh, Association of uh, Computing Machinery for Women. And that's important because the women in computer science or students need to be able to come together and talk about issues that maybe they just experienced. Everybody has all these different experiences. So universities need to make sure they create these safe spaces where students can actually advocate for themselves either through student organizations or through professors that are from a diverse uh, set that they can speak to. So um, not just professors, but administration. The administration should be reflective of, of what um, universities want as well as far as uh, that diversity component. Lastly, I want to include uh, something else that I've done throughout uh, my tenure as being a professor, but making sure professors and administrators and everyone at the university is taking courses to understand what inclusive means. Um, I've taken several courses throughout the pandemic that have helped me reshape and redesign my courses so that they can be in a way that is thoughtful for my students. And what, what I mean by that is sometimes we need articles that are written by diverse people within computing for my classes, right? We need media where it's not the same, you know, same people all the time. So we really need to have curriculum that actually advocates for that as well. And part of that is going to be requiring professors and others to actually make sure that they're designing their courses in a way that are inclusive to not only the discipline, but actually the students that they serve uh, as well. So I hope that kind of answers that question. But there's just on every level, there's work that we that needs to be done so that uh, everybody feels included and not 
excluded from anything that's happening at their institution. Well, and that's such an important part to make sure your students do feel included because you want them to be part of that experience so that they are successful and so that the uh, universities and colleges are successful as well. Absolutely. What advice do you have for families and peers on how they can support women in STEM as they are going through their college years? I would say to just really try to be there, be that those cheerleaders, you know, be the cheerleaders that your girls and women need as they're going through this space that may feel exclusive rather than inclusive. You know, try to hear them out, what's going on. Don't try to minimize anything that they're sharing with you because everybody's experience is extremely important and they need to feel that what they have to say is value. So I would tell that support system to, to be thoughtful and listening. Really try to understand if there are any issues that are arising from uh, your loved one. Be supportive and also be that cheerleader. It is the simple things that mean so much, to be honest with you. Whether it's someone, and I'm just using computer science because that's my discipline, but if your loved one is doing a hackathon, if you don't even know what that is, <laughs> you can still show up and support that and cheer them on, even though it's something that may be foreign to you. Really just try to engage and support them in all the ways they may need you, whether it be a listening ear, showing up for an event that they have going on, or just being uh, a vote of confidence that they need and telling them that they are amazing and how you don't understand what they're doing, but it sounds really cool. And <laughs> that is also support. That's when the STEM squad gets out <laughs> with, <laughs> with their cheers. <laughs> exactly. And it matters. Let me just tell you, it matters. We need STEM squad shirts now. <laughs> yeah, we do. I want to help design it. Okay. Too. Sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a plan. <laughs> Little yes. merch, little NGCP merch. <laughs> yes, I, I would love that. <laughs> Where can people go to find out more information about you? I have a website. It's my name, but ShiponDGrady.com. You can definitely go there. You can go to uh, my institution's website as well, nccu.edu. And also you can follow me on every social media platform that exists. Um, <laughs> that can be Threads. It used to be called Twitter. It's now called X, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I welcome you all to um, connect with me on all platforms. Uh, again, you can go to my website as well, but I, I welcome the opportunity to engage with you. And that's how you can learn more about me as well. And we will have links to all of those in the show notes. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful, and it really has been a pleasure discussing the importance for supporting women pursuing STEM degrees in college. So thank you, Dr. Siobhan Grady. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope that if nothing else, one thing resonated with anyone that's listening. Thank you so much for having me. As we delve into the challenges and opportunities faced by women in STEM during their college journey, we invite you, our listeners, to take action and be advocates for change. Share this episode with your peers, friends, and educators to raise awareness about the issues discussed. Let's work together to create a supportive and inclusive environment for women in STEM, ensuring that they have the mentorship, resources, and encouragement with that STEM squad that they need to excel and make significant contributions to the field. Your efforts can make a difference in empowering the next generation of women pursuing STEM degrees. 
You can follow the National Girls Collaborative Project on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at NGC Project and on YouTube at National Girls Collaborative. You can find NGCP's podcast, Empowering Change, Women and Girls in STEM, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting this work. The link is in the show notes. Join us next time to learn more about how we support effective strategies for taking action and showcase the hope for a more equitable future for women and girls in STEM. Thanks for joining us.